Welcome to Now We're Talking. I'm Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo, and this is a podcast about communication skills. So as I make this episode, um, the U.S. has just uh, had its election. Uh, The results are uncertain. We don't know if Trump or Biden is going to win. Um, So this this episode, I wanted to talk about, um, I I, I guess I kind of want to start with the accusation of the other side in a dispute being quote unquote crazy. And I guess I'm starting there because I woke up this morning wondering how 60 million people could have possibly voted for Donald Trump. How could they possibly seen that guy out there and thought, you know what? Yeah, I want four more years of that. It's really baffling to me. And it really um, creates, I think, a unique communication challenge. Um, so these are kind of some thoughts and some practices related to that in a, in a sort of way, but perhaps more simply. Um, so first, let's talk about what we know. Like, so research has shown that people respond favorably to requests when they're made in a reasonable tone of voice or when they're followed by the word because and a reason. There's a very famous study from the 1970s where a Harvard psychology professor named Alan Langer Um, approached people waiting for copy machines and she had her students or whoever ask if they could cut in line uh, the copy machine. Sometimes they gave a reason and sometimes they didn't. What she found out was that uh, without a reason, 60% of people let her cut the line. But when she did give a reason, it was more than 90%. And it didn't matter if the reason made sense. So if you were like, excuse me, I've got five pages. Can I cut in line because I have to make copies? which doesn't make any sense, people responded positively to, to the, the request because it had a reason. So basically, the suggestion is that idiotic reasons worked. They, they worked. It was just the, the rhetorical structure of the reason itself, not the, the quality of the reason that mattered. Um, now, in more complicated issues, you can actually increase your effectiveness by offering reasons that reference what I would call your counterparts or your interlocutors religion. And I'm here, I'm using religion in sort of scare quotes. Um, by religion, I mean their deepest held beliefs. So uh, I want to talk a little about why that is and where we go wrong in communication sometimes around this issue. But so it, it's not, it's just basically not human nature to embrace the unknown. Unknown things scare us. So when we're confronted by an unknown, we tend to ignore it or we run away from it or we label it in a way that allows us to dismiss it. So if you're in a negotiation, let's say, or in a dispute or an argument, if if a Democrat is in in an argument with a Republican, the label that that often we use instead of just running away or ignoring it when we have to label it, we say, that's crazy. It's It's crazy. Um, the, the Peter Bergen, who's a CNN national security analyst, once put it this way, negotiations with religious fanatics who have delusions of grandeur generally don't go well. The implication is because the religious fanatic is quote unquote crazy. They, they have a set of irrational beliefs. Um, just like 
for some Democrats, Republicans have this crazy set of rational beliefs. And just like for some Republicans, Democrats have these uh, religiously fanatical, crazy beliefs. What we're doing in a communication situation when we label something as crazy is we're choosing to not understand their, again, I'm using religion in quotation marks, but their religion, the other opposition's religion. Uh, instead of conversations that don't go well uh, or that are hard, we just sort of shrug our shoulders and say, well, they're crazy, so I cannot have a conversation with them. Of course, that's absolutely wrong-headed and a huge communication mistake. You ha we have to understand these things that we're labeling crazy. I'm not saying that because I'm... Um, because I really want to get along with these other people. I'm not saying that because uh, I want to transform them into rational creatures. I'm saying that because I know understanding those things, those kind of religious beliefs, is the best way to discover what the other side's desires and interests and vulnerabilities are, and therefore the best way to gain influence with them, to be able to persuade them. You can't get into a position of being able to persuade someone unless you know what their quote-unquote religious beliefs are. And you can't know those things unless you talk to them. So basically, in my view, no one's immune to the you're crazy argument or that's crazy argument. You can see it rear its head in literally every kind of communicative interaction, from parenting to Congress to corporate bargaining. So sometimes my, my children request something and I'll say, oh, that's a crazy request. I can't possibly do that. Uh, the moment when we're most ready to throw our hands up and declare that's a crazy request is very often the best moment for discovering something about another person that will transform the communicative interaction. So it's, it's sort of when you feel that your reaction to a statement is that's crazy, you should stop and think, oh, okay, this is the crucial fork in the road is being presented to me. Uh, it's when we're about to hear or see something that doesn't make sense, but will give me insight, crucial insight into this other person that would allow me to push forward uh, and guide or, or the process or be persuasive in that process. If I choose the path of, of they're crazy or that's crazy, I'm guaranteeing communicative failure. Um, and I rationalize that communicative failure to myself by just saying, well, well, conversation was useless anyway because that person's um, a religious fanatic or occupies such a, uh, a fundamentalist or crazy position that they can't engage in effective communication anyway. Um, so there's a great book called Negotiation Genius by Harvard Business School professors, uh, a couple of them. And that book, I think, looks at the common reasons why negotiators, at least, call their counterparts crazy. And I think these kinds of things inform broader communication practice as well. So the mistake, the first mistake they uh, suggest is that the other side is ill-informed. So uh, if the other side is acting on bad information, and when people have bad information, they make bad choices. Um, in, in, the, in engineering, this is known, known as garbage in, garbage out. Um, and in the book, one of the authors talks about a student of his who was in a dispute with an ex-employee who claimed he was owed $130,000 in commissions for work he had done before being fired. And he was threatening the lawsuit. 
Well, the executive turned to the company's accountants because he didn't know what, what this was about, and he discovered a problem. The accountants had been a mess when the employee was fired, but has since been put into order. Sorry, they, the accounts were a mess, and they, then they put them in order. And when they had the clean information, the accountants figured out that the employee owed the company $25,000, not the other way around. Uh, and so the, the executive calls the employee, explains the situation, and makes an offer. If the employee dropped the lawsuit, he could keep the twenty-five grand. Uh, and then to his surprise, the employee was like, I'm going to go forward with the suit anyway. Okay, that's crazy. He's acting irrationally. Um, the, the Harvard professors, though, they tell their students that the problem wasn't the craziness, but it was a lack of information and a lack of trust. So the executive then has an outside accounting firm audit the numbers and send the results to the employee. And then the employee drops the suit. So people that are operating with incomplete information can appear crazy to those who have different information. And in that communication situation, your job is to discover what they don't know and try and supply that information in an objective and trustworthy way. Another mistake people make is that they're constrained. Um, they can be constrained by any one of a number of things, um, but those constraints can make people seem irrational. Um, so imagine uh, somebody that's been negotiating a deal for months uh, and it's got getting law. It's it's gone on for a long time, uh, and he starts to worry that it's November, and if he doesn't close the deal before the calendar year, he would have to wait to a new budget, and like that was a real problem. Um, and then his his counterpart negotiation stops responding. Um, so, you know, they, they, you have an impasse, right? And there's a constraint with, with time. Um, and you're not sure why this person's being so nervous or anxious now because you don't know what the, the, what the constraint is. You haven't seen the constraint. Um, so the, the, once you know what the constraint is, you know, you can use it or res be responsive to it. So if you ask enough questions and you figure out, oh, like this person's working under this time constraint that makes their job much harder, it, it can become a kind of valuable tool in the conversation or in negotiating a kind of settlement to that conversation. Uh, here's another mistake. People have other interests. Um, the, they're often called in negotiation, they're called hidden interests. Um, they're... Uh, you know, so someone might reject an offer uh, for reasons that you think have nothing to do with the merits or the rational soundness of the offer. Um, but so like a client who's trying to buy your product, um, you know, it, like they, they might put off buying, they, you know, they want the product, you know, it's a good fit for them, you know, it's a good price, but they keep putting it off, they keep putting it off. Um, and you might wonder why, why are they putting it off? Well, they must have an interest in putting it off that you're not seeing. You think, oh, they're just crazy, but they actually have just a different interest. Um, so if you start to recognize the fact that they just have different interests, then you can figure out what those interests are and then, and then again, include them in the course of your conversation. So what you're trying to do is, is not label your, your interlocutor, your counterpart, or your the person you're interacting with through communication as irrational. You're trying to figure out how they might be ill-informed, constrained, or abiding by interests that do, you don't yet know. So your job is to ask questions about what information they lack, what their constraints are, what their interests are, so that you can then use those in the course of conversation. Um, so it's, it can be really hard to uncover um, what's going on 
with people like this that are that seem to be acting irrationally it can be really really difficult to figure out what their constraints are um, what their interests are or what their lack of information is uh, now negotiation that same book um, so there's a couple of recommendations to for what to do about this um, you know face-to-face -face conversations are much, much better than email or than electronic means of conversation in order to figure out what those interests, constraints, um, and um, uh, what those interests, what those constraints are, what that lack of information is. Um, also, you should be looking for people's, what we might call unguarded moments. They're moments of kind of informality and authenticity where they might be demonstrating something about their hidden interests, their, that what information they need or their hidden constraints. Um, so the, the point of all this is that if something doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't mean that it, you can't make sense of it, or it doesn't mean that there's not sense to be made of the situation. Your job in the communicative interaction is not to dismiss the other person by labeling them as crazy, but to get down to the work of understanding or figuring out how their position is sensible from their perspective. That sensibleness of their perspective have, has almost always to do with their interests, their information or lack of information, and their constraints. So it's almost always about one of those three things or all three, three of those things working together. Um, so the, I guess what, what I want to come back to the election for a second. I think one of the great failures of the Democratic Party in my lifetime, so for the past 40 years, is their incapacity to understand the motivations of Republican voters. Because on the surface, Republican voters routinely, year after year after year after year, vote contrary to their rational interests. So they vote for candidates, in this case Donald Trump, who will advance policy positions that will harm them. Trump is literally trying to kill some of his constituents by traveling around the country having these huge rallies in the middle of a pandemic with no masks and no health and safety measures in place. So he's out there trying to kill them, yet they show up wildly enthusiastic and they vote for Trump in the millions and millions and millions. And the Democrats sit there and scratch their head and think, geez, these people are just crazy. As soon as you've labeled them as crazy, you've given up the opportunity to, or you've given up on the possibility or even the willingness to persuade them of another position. And if you were to persuade them of another position, you'd have to understand or maybe we'll answer the question, what are their interests, what are their constraints, and what, are, what, la what information don't they have that are causing them to act in this irrational way? And then how can you get them better information? How can you re be responsive to their interests and their constraints become the communication challenges? And most, uh, to my kind of endless shock and dismay and frustration, most political campaigns never bother with the second and third thing. Sometimes political campaigns can bother with the first thing. Sometimes people try and get other people uh, accurate or trustworthy information. But the problem right now in the American political landscape is there's so, there's so much lack of trust in the media, and this has been sown by Donald Trump, that even if you give a Trump supporter accurate information, they will not believe that information. So in the, the first constraint, the, the, sorry, the first pro communication problem, you sort of have to let it go for right now and instead ask what are their constraints um, and what are their interests and how are their interests and their constraints 
motivating their their actions. And if you start from there, you may start in a place where you can persuade some of those voters to change their minds or to move to different positions or at least negotiate different outcomes with those with those voters. Um, so the the what I want, what I want to say really clearly is that I think this is a matter of understanding what I would call uh, our communicative interlocutors religion or the other side in a communicative interactions, their religion. And that means digging into their worldview and, and moving beyond what I would call uh, the reasonable or rational kind of structure of their communicative messages and into the uh, emotional life that's driving the construction of those messages. Um, if you're willing to do that, um, then you, I would, I would put it like this, you multiply the leverage you have in the communicative interaction. So you have more leverage for influence and for per persuasion than you would otherwise. And you've not committed the kind of communicative sin of disengagement with the label that they're crazy. Uh, you found a way forward for engagement and you suspended the kind of negative label of, of they're crazy or you're crazy uh, for the time being. Sometimes that can be enough. So I, I think the, the, harder, uh, the harder question is how you actually do that, how you suspend your label and then sort of get at the other side's religion. Um, I think that's, I, I did a podcast on calibrated questions. Like, I, I think that's really a, um, uh, a problem for how you ask things to unearth the kinds of commitments that lie behind or the kind of interests and values and constraints and, inf and information or lack of information that lies behind a person's reasoning. It certainly has everything to do with asking questions, but those questions need to be calibrated in order to uncover what you don't know about this person. Um, so I, I think in, that's where I kind of want to end up. I think the, the best thing or the best way to put this is that in an interaction with someone who you think on the surface appears to be so crazy and so irrational that you can't have a conversation with them, uh, what's going on is that you have to discover, you have to make known for yourself the unknown things about that person's belief system. So on a surface, their reasoning appears irrational and crazy, but below that surface, there's a justification. There are some things that that person feels that they know that orients their statements. You have to discover, you have to make known what those unknown things are for you. And once you know what's behind those seemingly irrational statements, they should those statements should appear to have a logic to them and that your responses to that person will be based on the underlying, uh, the underlying information, values, whatever that you've discovered in the in the process of asking that person strategic questions. Um, so you don't go wrong by just labeling them crazy or or labeling a position they occupy as crazy, but you ask a set of strategic questions to get at the things that you don't know about that person. That is that are orienting that person's what I'm calling for the time being religious beliefs or, or core beliefs that make their statements appear rational to, to them. That's a challenging process, but really that's the central process of living. I mean, part, partly it's the central process of democracy. It's the 
part of the central process of living with other people that are different from you. And it doesn't matter the difference. So my children are genetically part of me, yet sometimes they say create things that I think are crazy. And in that moment, I have to stop and say, what's the underlying architecture of the, the, their thinking that is leading to that statement for them as a sensible statement? And how can I be responsive to that underlying thing that on the surface I don't know that I have to get, I have to make known before I can respond in an effective fashion? Uh, so doing that that work makes you more persuasive is is the bottom line. And to me, the Democratic Party just doesn't do that work with rural voters. They don't bother. And they're going to continue to have these razor-thin margins. Or e even though rationally their policies are in those people's best interests, they're still not going to be getting their votes, uh, which is kind of astonishing and, and sad in, in lots of ways. Anyway, that's it for this was episode 90 of Now We're Talking. I'll be back shortly with another episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening.